Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. I'll be totally honest. I I didn't know much about Duncan Sheik. Um, I'm a pretty big music fan, um, but uh, he had somehow escaped my notice. Um, I had heard... Uh, barely breathing, I guess, when it when the, his big hit back in the '90s. But I was I was too busy listening to Pavement and other indie rock bands, uh, so that he was he never really got onto my radar in a big way. But then um, somebody recently pointed out to me that he's a meditator. In fact, he's been doing it for a while, and it's been a big part of his creative process. So uh, we invited him to come in, and uh, and he did. And I was super impressed and charmed by the guy, and I think you will be too. So I give you Duncan Cheek. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks really for appreciate having me. It. Yeah. Uh, my wife was psyched when I told her that you were coming oh, on nice. the show. This, she didn't know until this morning. She's like, what? You got Duncan <laughs> Cheek on the show? Tell her I say hi. Uh, I will. I will. Um, it's, she's very rarely impressed with me, so this was, okay. this was a win. <laughs> I'm sure that's not true. <laughs> no, it's definitely true. Uh, so how did you become a Buddhist? Uh, well, so I was I went to Brown University, and in my freshman year, I was taking a bunch of classes about Eastern religions kind of generally. Um, and I was just I, I think I had been interested in it in high school and you know, kind of lapsed Catholic, pretty you know standard typical story of like when I was fourteen or fifteen, I just basically started to not buy into the 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 dogma uh and uh the summer between my freshman and sophomore year i i went to la to visit a relative of mine actually my mother's cousin and she had been practicing buddhism since the early 70s um and specifically with the soka gakkai so she had been soka gakkai soka gakkai which is the it's sort of the lay buddhist organization of of nichiren buddhism which is the which is the Japanese form of Buddhism that I practice. And basically you just you chant Nam-myoho-renge-kyo. So that's the essential part of the is practice. It, you just run that you chant what? Nam-myoho-renge-kyo. And which, you chant it aloud or internally? You chant it aloud. Uh, you have a, a, a mandala, which is called a gohanzan, and sort of set up in an altar. So every morning and evening, you know, I'll chant for maybe... Sometimes it's 15 minutes. Sometimes, hopefully, it's an hour. Sometimes it's even longer. But, it's, you know, depending on what's going on in my day and my life, I chant, you know, every morning and every evening. And it's, you know, been a daily practice of mine since I was 19. How do your neighbors feel about this? <laughs> they they can't hear it. It's a, it's quite subtle. Um, but it's interesting because when I uh, when I started practicing, I was 19. And, and I, of course, I had been playing music for a long time, but I was an incredibly self-conscious uh, performer and, and, and singer. And uh, there was something about chanting where you're just kind of sitting on one note kind of continually that really taught me how to sing one note. And I think there's something great about if you know how to sing one note, then possibly you can learn how to sing two notes and then maybe three and then maybe four. And there was something really great about using my voice in this very calm and specific way that helped me a lot, um, you know, in terms of becoming a, a somebody who could actually get on stage and sing. But I, I, 
Well, I have a million questions. Yeah. Let me just start, <laughs> let me start with this. Uh, yeah. When I was, I, I I say this all the time when I meet people who started practicing either meditation or Buddhism or both mm-hmm. early. Because when I was nineteen, I was an idiot and a jerk. And if somebody had said, "Yeah, you should start chanting this thing," I would have been like, "Yeah, go pound uh, uh, sand." No yeah. way. Yes. So what about you allowed the, the, that idea to? to lodge itself in your brain? Well, well, okay, it's a great question because I also felt the same way. Um, I mean, I, I was, I, I wouldn't say I was a total idiot, but I was sort of a, a snob. I was like an intellectual snob about religion and I just felt like, oh, you know, you can't, I, I was like, I, I liked the Krishnamurti idea that there was no pr- particular practice that anyone should be following. You just sort of like, perceived stuff, you know, through the ether. I don't know what I was thinking. But uh, but I, I had this series of arguments with my mother's cousin while I was staying there in L.A. And, and uh, basically she said to me, look, you know, you can study Buddhism all you want and you can understand the intellectual precepts of it all you want. And that's fine. That's positive. But unless you sit down and practice, it's not going to have any real powerful effect on your life you know it's not going to change it's not going to change your karma it's not going to change your kind of you know your mission your destiny so to speak um so i sort of took that as a challenge i guess and so i sat down and i and i said okay well i'll chant and i'll see what happens and i'll i'll let you know you know and so i, I think the first day i sat down and i chanted for like two hours which is a really long time to be doing that the first time and my aunt was very sweet. She was sort of like, okay, I think that's, that's like enough <laughs> for, for today. <laughs> um, but, but, I, but I do have to say I, I, it was subtle. It wasn't this like, you know, aha moment. But I did feel this kind of sense of, I don't know, hopefulness and also a sense of like creative energy that seemed to be kind of welling up and excitement about possibilities in the future. Um, you know, and this is, you know, as a 19-year-old where I didn't know that much about Buddhism. It was just more a feeling. Um, so that's where it started. I, you know, have been pretty consistent um, since then. And how, do you sit in an in a interesting way or can you just sit yeah, in a chair? I, I, you, I, you can sit in a chair, but I, I kneel. Um, you know, like if I'm doing, like I, you know, I try to do some yoga as well. So if I'm, you know, if my yoga practice is pretty good, I, you know, I sit kind of in virasana, I guess is the position you would call it. And, you know, chant for however long I feel I need to. And believe me, it's like, it's sort of like running or like anything else, like in a way, like the more you can chant for 10 minutes and it's good. It kind of gets your blood pumping, so to speak. But if you do it for an hour, it has a much more intense effect. I'm curious about the effect because uh, as a meditator, I know what meditation does for you. I mean, I think the, the, I do sort of basic mindfulness meditation, which is the beginning practice that I think most people who bump up against Buddhism are taught, which is, you know, watch your breath and when you get when you get distracted, start again. Um, is it Vipassana? Vipassana, or? yes, yeah, yeah. or insight meditation. Yeah, okay. um, so, I mean, I get the, the, for beginners, the fruit of the practice really is you see, A, that your mind's out of control, mm-hmm. and you see, B, that there's a, way, a mechanism for training it to be more focused and less yanked around by your emotions. Right. Not complicated. Yeah. I don't really understand what... Cha- what chanting does for you, sure. and even though I'm no longer 19, I'm 45. Yeah. I'm still kind of an idiot and a jerk, and <laughs> like my 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 um, 
reflexive response to the idea of chanting is, yeah. is negative. Right. I, I totally understand that. And I, you know, as somebody who watches endless amounts of Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris and, and Richard Dawkins and all the four horsemen of the apocalypse, I do understand that impulse very well about like, oh, this is sort of mystical, magical mumbo jumbo. I, I get it. Um, but I will say that, uh, you know, Nami Horenge Kyo, well, first, it, it is a, it's a kind of a rhythmic thing. So there is something that does happen, I think, physiologically when you're kind of in that rhythm and you're chanting that thing. It's a, and it, ha, you know, changes how you breathe. I think it changes many things about your, just how, you know, how your whole body is functioning um, how the relationship of your brain to your heart to, to you know your whole circulatory system, so I do think that it it has a really positive aspect in that regard. Um, uh, also, like I think of it like Nami Horenge Kyo to me is like um, it's kind of like I think of it. There are these laws that govern the universe. There's gravity. There's electromagnetism. There's um, you know, the second law of thermodynamics, you know, nothing is ever created or destroyed. Nami Horenge Kyo, to Buddhists, is sort of like this law that underlies all the, the kind of, the, it's like the law of cause and effect. So you're getting in rhythm with that, that huge kind of force, so to speak. Is there an element of mindfulness to it? You know, my, again, I, I, I view mindfulness, there are a lot of ways to define it, but I view it as just the, the mental skill that you can train to see what's happening in your mind without getting carried away by it. And I found that to be remarkably useful, especially like in marriage. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, I, yeah, I do think there's an element of that. I, I think for me, I use the practice as a way of um, focusing on, you know, how can I create value? In, in the world, in society. How can I create value for myself, for the people in my environment, um, and, you know, within the culture? You know, as somebody who makes art um, for a living, how can I do that in the best way possible? That's, you know, that's what, that's what Channing gives me. The, the, I don't know, obviously, I think my questions are demonstrating how little I know about Nichiren Buddhism. Mm-hmm. So it's Japanese. It's not Zen, though. No. And, and, and Yeah, Nichiren was sort of a, a competitor is the wrong word, but he was, he, he was, um, he was a Buddhist reformer. Uh, Buddhism in Japan in the Middle Ages was, this, it was mostly practiced by kind of aristocrats and priests, kind of quite frankly, kind of corrupt priesthood who was, you know, the, the typical thing of administering expensive funerals and, you know, think, you know, bestowing talismans on aristocrats who would pay them a lot of money. And it was sort of a racket. And so Nietzsche was this reformer who kind of came in and said, Buddhism is for everybody. You know, it's for the common people. It's for women. You know, it was a very shocking idea at the time. Um, and he was, you know, he was persecuted and he was... Um, castigated and he remonstrated with the government. He's a really interesting historical figure. Um, and so, but, you know, this form of Buddhism that he, that he originated, um, it wasn't practiced by very many people for 700 years. It wasn't until the kind of 1930s in Japan where um, a group of educators, um, this guy Tsunisburo Makaguchi, 
he kind of he kind of popularized the practice, and it really took off in pre World War II Japan, and especially after World War II, it really took off because the country was decimated and people were really looking for something, you know, to kind of pull themselves out of that situation. So it has a pretty fascinating history. You ever think you could write a, a play about it? <laughs> well, it's funny. I mean, I, I I have the thought has crossed my mind, but it's such a it's such a big, huge, grand topic that I feel like it's something I should do when I'm like seventy or something. You know, when I'm uh, I, isn't all <laughs> isn't all great theater big, huge, grand topics? Sometimes, Not all, but a sometimes, lot. Sometimes, yeah, it can be. It can be about some, I don't know. That's another conversation. But theater, I think, can really be about anything. Well, that's true. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, yeah, and another area where I know basically zilch, which will become evident as we start talking about theater eventually. I'm sure not. Um, no, no, no. Be, be sure, yes. Um, but but back to your practice. So mm. I, I practice, as we said, Vipassana. One of the most interesting things for me is the marriage of the the actual meditation practice and the intellectual infrastructure. You know, reading books about it, listening to yeah. talks. Yes. Um, so how much of that is there in Nichiren? There's a fair amount. I mean, there's the Gosho, which are kind of like the collected writings of Nichiren Daishonin. Um, and most of them are letters that he kind of wrote to his followers. Uh, and in those letters, you have uh, all of this kind of amazing, very, frankly, very deep wisdom that, um, you know, you have to understand it in its cultural context, of course, but it's really, it's really profound stuff. Um, and and I do feel like it's I've benefited a lot from spending time with that with those writings, um, but there's also you know it's a lay Buddhist organization so you know once a month I I get together with a group of you know twenty or thirty fellow Buddhists and we meet in somebody's apartment. In fact, you know it's somebody who lives on Wall Street, but there's you know thirty of us get together and we're from all different parts of New York City and all different walks of life. And, um, you know, it's every different ethnicity. It's actually really great because it's the one time where I'm in a room with, like, you know, Asian people, black people, Hispanic people, white people, all different, you know, walks of life. And um, and we're all there kind of for the same reason. So it's 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 a really cool thing. And do you chant together? Yeah, you chant. You do gongyo together. You chant a bit. And then... People, you know, they talk about their experiences, what's going on in their life, and how Buddhism affects their life. And we talk a little bit about doctrine. I, I sort of wish the conversation would be. It, it's. I wish sometimes I wish it would get a little more theoretical, <laughs> but because uh, it's it, it tends to stay pretty general because it's kind of for people who are just starting to practice. Um, but it's great, and I always leave. You know, I leave those those meetings feeling really positive and 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 really you know like I've learned something about these people who I never otherwise would have hung out with how loud is the chant you say it's subtle but but I mean, is it... it yeah I mean if you're chanting by yourself it's not very loud at all obviously but if you're in a room with 400 people it's you know it's 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 loudish but it's you know it's not it's not crazy so you could do it in the next room and your girlfriend would not be perturbed by it yeah yeah and in, in fact i really like chanting alone i mean i'm an only child so i like to do a lot of things alone so i really like to just practice on my own um and i that tends to be how i practice but when i'm with you know 20 people or 300 people and we're all chanting it it can be that can be a really cool experience as well yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, I think group practice of any sort has a certain uh, potency to it. Yeah. No question about it. But I do understand this thing of like, oh, why, you know, you're chanting these syllables that are kind of, uh, you know, some medieval dialect of Japanese from the 13th century. Like, what does that have to do with, you know, with uh, with any with anything in our contemporary life? I understand that that question. Um, and, you know, it, there is an aspect of it that is um, mysterious. And, and I can only just say that it, you know, that it has had a really profound effect on, on my life. Because when I, you know, when I started practicing, I was 19, like, I literally could not get on stage and sing an entire song in front of an audience without, you know, collapsing, without, like, melting. And seven years after I started practicing, you know, I had a Grammy nomination as, you know, for best male pop singer. You know, it was just completely like it, it had a very profound effect you, on, you, on you my You pin life. that all on the practice? I don't – no. I don't pin it all on the practice. Because your I, innate talent certainly played a role. Well, but I, I, don't, I don't think that I would have gotten to that place if I didn't have this – you know, there's kind of this sense of this like never give up spirit that, that – um, the practice kind of embodies in you. Uh, so and, really, because I, I mean that's not that's interesting because that that's not what I would ha- describe as the impact mm-hmm. of doing straight up mindfulness. Mm-hmm. I think Nichiren Buddhism is much more. What's the word? It's much. It's it's much more about about daily life and about creating value. And I think whereas like Zen Buddhism, for example, you know, it, is more about oh, I'm gonna like kind of erase my ego and kind of calm down, you know, calm down the, you know, the voices in my head and kind of back away from that. Nichiren Buddhism is like very engaged kind of in in daily life. But it but in a in a you know, not in a not in a sense of like proselytizing or anything, but just in a sense of the things that you're doing are they creating value for for the people in your environment? Is it is it engaged in the world in a, in the in the sense that people are using it so that they're more successful? Um, I do think that 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 has happened quite a bit and and it's and, and it is one of the one of the ways in which Nichiren Buddhism has been painted with a little bit of a negative brush at times. Oh so the rap on it is people are chanting this thing in order to, you know, make money or whatever. There, there yeah, there, that has definitely occurred and I and I see it you know, in a lot of people, and I see you know people who are, you know, they're they're maybe chanting for the wrong reasons. Absolutely, huh. and and they do have this sense that it's sort of this magical, mystical thing that's going to you know it's going to help bring them wealth. It's sort of like the like people who think of Christianity like the prosperity kind of gospel yeah, and all yeah. that. Not, I mean, that stuff to me is total nonsense. And it, um, But I also think that if that's the thing that gets them to start practicing and then, you know, uh, I think that if they continue to practice, that will, that will change. But let's unpack this for just a yeah, second because yeah. you said that uh, one of the big impacts for you was you started, you were too shy to really get up on stage, and then seven years later you had a Grammy nom. So, so that does seem to put it within the context of success. But but there's another way to think about it, which is that it was more about fulfilling fulfilling your potential. Yeah, absolutely, and and fulfilling something that that was that was within me, but that I think was really blocked um, mm. in in many ways. And that's a you know that's a lifelong struggle you know as you know like you're constantly bumping up against these things inside yourself that are 
real, you know, that can be hard to overcome. And so, you know, Buddhist practice for me has been one consistently effective way of doing that. Um, but, and I, you know, I wish I was, you know, I wish I was, a, you know, a, a better practitioner and a more consistent practitioner of it. But I, but I know it's, you know, it's there. Do you think the syllables have some sort of power in and of themselves or is it just the act of chanting? Could you, you be know, chanting the ABCs? Yeah, no, I, I do think there is a distinction. You, you know, it's I have asked that question of, uh, you know, some people who I consider to be some very wise, uh, older men and women many times. And I do think that if you just sat there and chanted Coca-Cola over and over, there would be a very different <laughs> effect um, because it, it is we are talking about the law of cause and effect. And, uh, you know, not to go too deeply into the into the kind of doctrinal. No, go deep, man. That you're in a safe Buddhism. place. You can go deep yeah, as you want. So you know, Namya Horenge Kyo is 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 the title of the Lotus Sutra, and so when you say Namya Horenge Kyo, it's kind of devotion to the great and wonderful Lotus Sutra. That's the like literal um, translation of it. But the Lotus Sutra kind of says two things. It says two really important things. It says every Every human life has the Buddha nature within it. Okay, so everybody, no matter who you are, where you're from, no matter how awful or foolish or wonderful or beautiful or not, you, everyone has this Buddha nature within you, and and it's something that you can uh, that you can manifest. Um, and so I think, and then the second thing it says is that that Buddha nature is sort of. <laughs> infinite in both directions. So it's something that's that's always existed and will always exist kind of through time. Um, and so not to get into, again, this is like a huge uh, philosophical Buddhist concept of kind of the the infinity of time and space and, you know, the, the kind of vastness of time and space and how this kind of connects to your own Buddha nature. And when you, you know, I think through your practice, you can you do, you are able to connect to this understanding of the universe as this truly huge thing with all this great potential power. So That's just awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's not something that's like, it doesn't happen every day, but I think it's something that you do experience at times, and it's, it's quite profound. Yeah, if you're getting that out of it, <laughs> it seems like it's, inher- it's, it's a valuable thing to do. Yeah. Uh, it's great. It's great. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. The weather is getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high-quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. 
The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at Quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home and I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable. And uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good looking stuff at low prices. Not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash happier. How have have Buddhist themes shown up in your songwriting? Yes, and some you know, and sometimes more explicitly than I wish they had. Like I'm slightly not embarrassed, but there's some things that are on my first couple records that I just feel like are so um, they're so kind of obvious <laughs> in a way. And I I never like you know again like when I think about people where any music that's preachy in any way, shape, or form, I really don't like it at all. And so I've tried to, I've really tried to avoid that. But there are some, you know, there are certainly songs that have a lot of, a lot of Buddhist uh, themes and, and some kind of Buddhist imagery within them. Um, And again, I'm like, I feel a little bit embarrassed about it, but it's what I did when I was in my 20s, you know? I, I mean, I think... I think you can get a pass. You're in your 20s. <laughs> yeah. You were yeah. dealing with a big, big wave of, of early success. Yeah. And so I, I would imagine it just throws one up against a lot of these themes of desire and yes. uh, I, I would imagine primarily desire. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's funny because also, I mean, in, in, in Nietzsche and Buddhism, there's this idea that earthly desires equal enlightenment. And I know that that sounds crazy probably to to many people but th- there is this sense that if you didn't have desire then you wouldn't there you'd have no motivation to kind of do anything so um it's it's you know i think there is this process in your practice where your desire not that your desires become purified because that sounds very puritanical and buddhism is not that at all but your desires become kind of clearer and and the things that are going to make you truly happy, those things become clearer. So yeah, of course, you know, in my twenties, and you know, the things that I was excited about, you know, were were really obvious things. You know, like hanging out with models and you know making money and having nice cars and nice apartments and recording studios and all that. And you know, the, uh, of course, those you know, I'm I wasn't immune to that by any stretch, but. I do think at a certain point, um, the things that make you truly happy become clearer. And certainly, like through, you know, as I when I sit down to chant now, you know, it's really about like, can I write a piece of music that's gonna affect somebody's heart? You know, is it is it gonna is it gonna take them to some mysterious, unexpected place when they hear this music um, that they that they didn't that they didn't know they had it in them? Um, and if I can do that, 
you know, that's like that's the thing that uh, that really means the most to me. So desire this this theme of desire. Uh, d- there's a I don't know if I can speak about this with co- any cogency, but but Dr. Mark Epstein, who's a friend of mine and a previous guest, a on, friend of mine as well. Okay, you know. Okay, so you, yeah. okay. Okay, yeah. so uh, Epstein wrote a book called Open to Desire, yes. in which he tries to sort of invert the denigration of desire that is very common in mainstream Buddhism, which is yes. desires like the enemy. Yes. But he actually, and again, I don't know if I can restate this accurately, and I, don't, I might get an angry phone call from Mark here, but, <laughs> but um, uh, he uh, says that basically, you know, desire is important. It is, not, it is what gets you out of bed, and yeah. it can be up, uh, something also to watch with mindfulness and investigation to see how nothing, there's a poignancy in the fact that even when your desires are fulfilled, we're not fully satisfied. Yeah. And so to watch that is actually a source of potential wisdom. Uh, so there's a, this seems to be a very rich field that you've just touched on. Yeah, I, I mean, not to go into too great detail, but I've had many long conversations with Mark about this and about my, you know, my own desire for, you know, for drinking and drugs and, you know, sex and money and, you know, all these things that we do get wrapped up in, you know, in this, you know, <laughs> New York City uh, world that that we live in, um, and uh, he, you know, what was great about Mark was that he was just so calm and so kind and so compassionate and so non-judgmental. Exactly, non-judgmental. That, and just saying, you know, like you just said, just kind of look at it and try and understand where it's coming from and let it pass. Uh, so I know a little bit about uh, desire for drugs, um, and I and I read and I and I could be wrong about this. So you correct me. But did you did you go to rehab for a little bit? I did. I did. And so this was back in like 2011. Yes. So the the practice of Buddhism, it's not going to solve all of your problems, and this would be an interesting case study. Yeah, I mean, it was you know, I, it was a it was a very intense time for me. Um, it was kind of a couple of years after after the success of Spring Awakening. And I think, you know, um, myself and my collaborators all kind of thought that the, you know, that after that show, everything was going to be easy street after that. You know, like all the opportunities were going to come and the show was going to run for 10 years. And But, you know, a, a lot of things happened where that, that just wasn't the case. And I found myself, you know all of a sudden kind of, you know, living the life I always wanted to live. And, you know, I had all this money in the bank and I was really like happy. And all of a sudden it was, you know, three years later it was gone, you know. And why? Um, a combination of, of factors. But, uh, you know, I, you know, I, I had I I sold some real estate. I bought some real estate. I spent a lot of money building a recording studio. Um you know, and I kind of I wasn't being careful with you know my just lifestyle in general. And the show didn't run as long as and you yeah, and and you know there were a lot of things that were supposed to kind of happen that that didn't happen, and I found myself just kind of you know I was like really depressed, and um, you know I'm the next show that I wrote called Whisper House, which a show that I'm really proud of, and it's actually going to be staged in London 
this spring. But, you know, we did it at the Old Globe in San Diego, and it, it didn't transfer it to Broadway. And, you know, like all these records I was making, I was like having to make these records and make them kind of on my own dime. And I wasn't making that much money from touring. And it was just sort of like where it just sort of evaporated yeah. um, over yeah. the course of a few years. And I was, do, you know, I was doing work that I was proud of, but it was just sort of like what's going on. So I think, uh, you know, I think I was, you know, I was definitely drinking way too much to kind of, you know, just compensate for that or to kind of dull that wh- whatever it was, guilt or shame or, you know, self-criticism. Um, but again, when I, you know, when I went to rehab, um, it weirdly, it kind of made me just feel like, ah, I just need to practice more intensely. Mm. Like, you know, AA, as much as I admire and respect those folks, it's not what I believe in at all. And so um, it kind of brought me back to my practice again, which, so I'm very grateful for that. Um, Just to fill in some of the details that some listeners may not be familiar with, Mm -hmm. and I'll I'll try to, I'll start this and then you can finish it because I will unquestionably run afoul of uh, facts. Mm -hmm. Um, So you transitioned at one point from being kind of like a, Nineties uh, and two thousands era uh, 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 emo troubadour <laughs> to to writing uh, for the stage. Yes, and Spring Awakening uh, was a huge hit, mm-hmm. um, and it was a remake of a German. Uh, yeah, so it's based on a um, a play that was written in eighteen ninety one by Frank Vedekind, and uh, it was it's a very it's kind of thought of as the first German expressionist play. Uh, and it's a very racy piece about teenagers who are, you know, um, trying to understand the birds and the bees and the parents and the teachers and the clergy in their very kind of strict Lutheran environment, kind of bourgeois environment. They don't give them the necessary information. And then, you know, kind of all hell breaks loose in, in various ways. And um, And so we did a you know, we did a version of the show where the scenes are set in 1891, but when the kids sing, they kind of become contemporary kids, and the music is, you know, uh, alternative rock for, for indie rock, for lack of a better term. And at the time, it was a very, you know, uh, you know, I don't know, very groundbreaking thing because they're, you know, they're. Everyone said, "Oh, this is this." show will never ever work it certainly will never go to Broadway you know you might be able to do it off Broadway and do it on this kind of you know go to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival or something but um, but it did turn into this really interesting cultural moment and it was it was great it's a lot of fun and you've kept going with theater yeah so um, you know I, I again it's it's hard to give you the list of all the things that are kind of in development but recently um, I just did American Psycho, which was also on Broadway. Big Buddhist names in that, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny. I mean, American Psycho is a uh, – I don't know that most people understood this, but it is, it's a real critique of a lot of the, the values that kind of happen in the period of late capitalism. And, and so I do think of it as actually mm-hmm. very Buddhist in the sense that it's a critique of those things. But I rescind my snarky remark. I rarely <laughs> do that. <laughs> but, but, you know, but it's also meant to be, and it, it is, it's supposed to be an entertainment. And, and so I think one of the problems with American Psycho is that it, it was kind of trying to be 
many, many different things, and that, and tonally, it might have felt a bit uneven because of that, you know, where it's supposed to be funny and and kind of outrageous and insane, but also moralizing on some level about, um, you know, about what happens when the only thing you care about are material things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There are there are legit Buddhist themes and explicit Buddhist themes, as I understand it, in Spring Awakening, which I apologize I've never seen. Yeah. But I've read you talking about it a sure. little bit. Can you talk about it here? Yeah. Well, so in Buddhism, there's this idea that at any given moment, you're kind of shifting through these 10 different life states. So hell, hunger, animality, anger, tranquility, uh, rapture, learning, realization, bodhisattva, which is like compassion and enlightenment. And at any given moment, you're in one of these, inhabiting one of these states, and we all know what they are. Like, if you, you know, when you're in hell, you know you're in hell. When you're in hunger, you're in the state of desire. When you're, you know, just chilling in your house, you might be in a state of tranquility. I'm mostly in animality. <laughs> animality is, you know, yeah, it's a lot of people. Yeah, spend... I'm eating food out of a bowl on the floor. No, but <laughs> yeah, it's really, animality is more the state of being sort of like a sycophant, where you're kind oh. of kissing up to people above you and, and kind of pissing on people below you. Huh. Um um, but anyway, so there are these 10 life states. And I think that uh, really great pieces of of uh, art, whether it's a, a really fantastic movie or a really great play or a musical, um, I think that they are able to kind of um, show the human condition in all of those yeah. different life states. Yeah. And, and certainly in Spring Awakening, you do have all of those life states kind of represented um, in terms of the you know what happens to these kids and and their their kind of reaction to it, um, and you know so you look at something like Les Mis for example you know you have all of these really profound human emotions and they're all represented there. So, um, but t- I, being a teenager is such an interesting time. I would imagine as an artist to play with because it's just like raw id on so many levels. Yeah, absolutely, and you know that's when you know that's when. Um, I mean, obviously, I care deeply about music, but that's that that was when music affected me in the most kind of intense way. You know, when you're 15 and 16 and I have my you know headphones on and I'm listening to, you know, some talk talk record or Depeche Mode record or whatever it was <laughs> like that was the most, you know, that was when it was like, oh, this song really changed my whole yes. being. Yes. Yeah. So it, it feels like I. I, I didn't plan to go here. I didn't. Mm. But what you're talking about is actually striking a chord with me because music mattered so much to me. Mm. Not only as a teenager, but even in my early 20s when I was starting out in TV news and I was living in Bangor, Maine, and mm. listening to Guided by Voices records and Pavement yeah. records, and yeah. it felt to me like transmissions from a more sophisticated world yeah. that, and and a connection to something bigger, and it really d- did. I don't know. I have meaning to that. I'm. I have trouble articulating. Yeah. What's interesting, though, as I'm now in my mid forties, is I feel like it has a lot less meaning to me now. I know. I know, and I hesitate to say that that's because there's not as much good music being produced now. Because there there are some really great records and really great bands out there, but you have to really look in the nooks and crannies to find them. But you don't think it's an age thing where you know maybe other things have taken. You know, I have a kid now. Yeah, his music taste is terrible. By the way, 
his does, favorite song. Does he is, listen to Kids Bop? He listens to You Got to Move. I, I like to move it. What's that song? Uh, I like to move it, move it, that song. Okay. That's his big. That, it's not even a kid's song. It's right. just a terrible, like, techno song. Yeah. Um, no no offense to the Madagascar Five who put that record out. <laughs> I happen to know. Um, but but I just, I, I still listen to a lot of music, especially yeah. when I'm working out, and I yeah. still like. Uh, pitchfork yeah. is still the first thing I look at you in the morning because I want to know what's yeah. coming out. But I feel like it doesn't have the meaning that it did to me, even in my late 30s. And I don't, I don't know that maybe that's an idiosyncratic thing, or maybe it happens as you get older, and that's just kind of sad. No, I think it's true. I, you know, look, I think pop music has certain limits, has certain limitations. And if I, you know, now as a 46 year old, uh, if I'm looking for something that's really, really going to affect me in a deep way. I've got to be listening to Arvo Pert or, you know, Steve Reich or some, you know, John Adams or some 20th century kind of classical composer that it's a little more musically nutritional, for for lack of a better word. Um, and I don't really necessarily find that in in pop music, you know, because I've just, you know, I've grown out of it on some level. Um, I mean, I still really love pop music, and there are certain things that can be fantastic. And, uh, you know, I love Kendrick Lamar, and I love, mm-hmm. you know, some of The weekend, and I love some Kanye stuff. Me too. But but notwithstanding some of his stranger <laughs> public pronouncements, yeah, he's a yeah, great but, musician. Yeah, so I mean, I, it's not like I, I it's not like I'm um, I've divorced myself from it. But it's you know it serves sort of a very different function in a way. Um, and I you know I love a lot of electronic music, but usually it's more avant garde stuff and you know things like Richie Houghton and stuff like that. So. I, I I find that it's pl- it's playing like a utility utilitarian purpose, which is to like get me through three miles on the treadmill. Uh, untr- right, right, and I understand that too. But I that to me gets tiresome. But then again, you know, the last Radiohead record, it's gorgeous. I mean, it's really a piece of beauty. So people are still making be- great records. It's just they not they're not that they're not in the wider culture as much as they should be. Is right. my my opinion. Right. Um, what else? Now that we've explored the depths of your mind, soul, and chanting abilities, <laughs> what what, you, what what are you working on that we can go check out? Mm. Well, so uh, the main things theater-wise I'm working on uh, is a stage adaptation of Secret Life of Bees, which is a, a hugely popular book by Sue Monk Kidd. And um, uh, we should be hopefully um, workshopping that uh, – you know, in 2017, we have an amazing director, Sam Gold, and amazing writer, Lynn Nottage, and Susan Birkenhead doing the lyrics. It's a really great team. Um, doing an adaptation of Alice in Wonderland with Stephen Sater, which is called Alice by Heart. Um, I have a show called Noir um, that hopefully will be staged in 2017. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm actually trying next year to... Um, take a little time off because this past year has been so so busy. Um, where I, you know, I put out a record last October, and I toured in November with Suzanne Vega, and I I had two shows on Broadway, and it was just like way That's too a lot. much. So so this year, and you you're know, trying to maintain a relationship, and yeah, do yeah, and yeah, do all that good stuff. But uh, I'm trying to like you know, um, I have some commitments this year coming up, but I'm trying to kind of take most of the year off so to speak but that really to like write my new write the next Duncan Sheik record and 
and not and not have these things that are sort of like homework but you know just be involved in creative pursuits that are more pure i guess you could say what a pleasure to sit and talk to you man yeah thank you so much for having me uh, no, no. The thanks goes from me to you for coming in. I really appreciate it. This is just it's totally interesting. Is there anything, before I let you go, that I should have asked but didn't ask? Any other points you want to make? Anything else we should know about? Um, no, I mean, the only thing I was going to say was interesting because I, I, I'll admit, I, I, I did a little research on you before I came in, and, and I watched the, the, the piece where you kind of talked about your, you know, anxiety attack and and it's funny like what you know one of the reasons I started I, I recognized that immediately as something that plagued me and you know it happened to me actually fairly recently I was teaching um, I was artist in residence at NYU at the Clive Davis School of Music and it happened to me during a class wow where I was you know I had 30 kids there and I just sort of like oh froze up and I you know it's that thing where your throat clinches up oh, and yeah. you're, and it's like it's this crazy thing and 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 as actually that was one of the other things that that got me to start practicing because I was really kind of freaked out by the fact that that could happen to yeah, me your body can rebel uh, um yeah so anyway so I, I feel like you're a real kindred spirit in that way <laughs> <laughs> that we had this experience and it's like whoa um there are a lot of us out there. Yeah. It is not, it's, you know, panic attacks are a real thing. Yeah. Let me ask you just on your recent panic attack, had yeah. you had enough sleep the night before? Probably not. Probably not. That can really do it. Yeah. There, there was a, my shrink, the guy who I went to after I had, I actually had two panic attacks. The second one was much more mild. Yeah. And I've had plenty of panic attacks, but th- these were the two televised ones. Right, right. And um, the, after the second one, I went to this shrink at NYU as an expert in panic. And mm-hmm. he really, first of all, he helped me point out that one major exacerbating factor was a little thing known as cocaine. Oh, right. So quitting that actually stopped uh, yeah, yeah. the panic attacks or really nipped them in, a bud, in the bud in a big way. Yeah. But the problem is once you learn how to panic, you get very good at it. Yeah. And what he pointed out is that the really the best way to pr- – to deal with them is preventive um, it's just preventive self care yeah and he used an animal an, an analogy uh, that I had I, I sort of didn't remember it correctly so I'm, a couple of years later I went back to him and I was like remember that time you said I should treat myself like a stallion mm-hmm. and he said no 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 no. I meant thoroughbred uh, and because I of course like a kitten looking in the mirror and seeing a lion I of course thought he meant stallion right. um, but the point is if you take good care of yourself don't drink too much coffee get yeah. enough sleep exercise all the annoying crap yeah, yeah. You're, the likelihood of a panic attack I found vastly diminished right right totally I agree 100% but I'm sorry to happen to you recently. Yeah, yeah. But you know, I think it's um, it, you know it's something that uh, y- you know we have it inside us, and and it's like a lifelong thing to kind of uh, uh, you know to escape from that karma, perhaps. Yeah, yeah I would agree. I would agree. Yeah. Duncan Cheek, thank you very much. All right, thanks. So really much. appreciate it. Cheers. All right, there's another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you like it, I'm going to hit you up for a favor. Please subscribe to it review it and rate it uh i want to also thank uh, the people who produce this podcast josh cohan lauren efron sarah amos and the head of abc news digital dan silver and uh hit me up at twitter dan b harris see you next time
If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.